If you're fairly new among us, or perhaps even if you've been at Southview for many years, you might be wondering, why do we celebrate a creation weekend each year? I'm glad you asked. Because really, over the course of the church year, we intentionally remember and celebrate the, the great works of God that Scripture lays out for us. As we will do in Advent, remembering the birth of Jesus, God becoming flesh. And, and then we move through the season of Lent, and then Easter, the high point of the church year, remembering Christ dying and rising from the grave for us to bring us redemption. And then we'll come to the season of Pentecost, and remembering the coming, the gift of the Holy Spirit for each person who turns in faith to Christ. Those are just a few of the seasons that we walk through. So it just seemed very natural that as part of walking through and remembering this great story of Scripture, that we would also take time each year to remember the wonder of the first great work of God, creation itself. And so this is part of our pattern, kind of an annual celebration in our church here together. And in this creation weekend, what we want to do in this is, is pause in part just to remember what God has made, to celebrate what he's made, and really to take one kind of vital step in the year of walking through the story of Scripture, which unfolds in the seasons we celebrate as we journey through the year. So let's do this. Let's, let's just start as we typically do on this weekend by considering some of the wonders of God's creation. And it's really been said that God has given to us two great books in which he's revealed. And, and the first book really is the Word of God, Scripture itself. Primarily, he reveals himself to us there. But also, there's a work of God, creation himself, in which he's revealed. So just for a few moments, let's reflect on the work of God. I brought a few pictures of what God has done. And again, it's stunning. And, and let's start small in this. And, and here we go. This isn't some alien from a Ridley Scott movie. This, maybe you know, is a tardigrade. They're also called water bears. And, and these things are quite amazing, really. They're kind of virtually indestructible. Uh, they can survive literally decades without food or water. They can survive in Antarctic ice or at the deepest ocean depths. Here's another picture. It looks a bit cuddlier. These things can also survive in boiling water, in the highest radiation, in outer space. They can survive in suspended animation for years, and they can survive in your nightmares, I tell you. One person put it this way. It's genuinely like God decided to make a creature with superhero powers, but made it only one millimeter long. So understand, there can be 20,000 of these in just one gram of forest moss. Makes you want to stay out of the forest, doesn't it? <laughs> these, these are just part of God's just magisterial creation. Okay, now, now from the microscopic, let's move to the telescopic. These are images from the Chandra Observatory and the Hubble Telescope. And this first one here, this is called the Spaghetti Nebula. Simeus 147 is the other name for it. This is a supernova. That means a, a star death, not a death star. We're not talking Star Wars, but the death of a star, the remnant of that. This is in our Milky Way galaxy, and it is 150 light years across. Now, just to, to remind us of this, a light year is about nine and a half trillion kilometers. So do the math on the width of just that beautiful thing. Okay, here's the next one. 
Next one here. This, this is the birth of a star, actually. And, and so it's really a star hatching out of that birth cloud. And that cloud is 180 light years across. The beauty of it. Here's the third one. This is called the Lighthouse Nebula. And, and this is actually a fast-moving pulsar that's within our galaxy again. And again, it's another supernova remnant. Now, that part I've circled down there, I, I wanted you to see this particularly because that's part of the kind of end of that, which we can't physically see, is just a neutron star. Now, it's kind of that dwarf star. It, that star is only 24 kilometers in width. So you could kind of lay it down on Calgary and fit it within the length of our city. But, but streaming out from that, you can see that in the kind of purple color there. That's a record-breaking jet stream. So that little neutron star in our Milky Way galaxy, it has a jet stream 37 light years in length. OK, I had to bring one more. It's a butterfly nebula. Now, there's this beautiful scene here. This is in Scorpio's constellation, the Scorpion. And the wings of that are 28 trillion kilometers across. That, that's 4,000 light years away from us, and we can see it. Is any wonder what Scripture says about all this? In Psalm 19, verse 1, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours out speech. Night to night, look at the skies. It will reveal knowledge. And may I add to this, friends? Those of you who are scientists among you, we've been praying for you even today. Just You provide stunning insight into the wonder of God's creation. Just want to encourage you in your vocation in that way. And, and I think we all know this. We know while a church at times kind of has looked dismissively on scientific discoveries, I want us to remember as well that the scientific explosion actually flowed out of the belief that creation was orderly. It could be studied and understood because there was a belief there was an orderly God behind its formation. That's what was really the impulse behind that explosion. Okay, but today... As we consider the wonders of God's creation, we're not so much going to do a scientific study, uh, more so we're going to do a biblical study together. Because I want to look together today as what this word says about the future of this universe, the creation in which we live. Just want to consider together the question, okay, so where is this creation headed? Well, why consider that question? For this reason, truly, friends, we cannot fully appreciate what God is seeking to bring in redemption through Jesus Christ if we don't understand what God intended and initiated in creation. I want to say that again. We cannot fully appreciate what God is seeking to bring in redemption through Jesus Christ if we don't understand what God initiated and intended in creation. And I think we might have some common misunderstanding about creation's future. So we're going to look together today, where is this creation headed? Now to answer that question, we're going to lay some pretty thorough biblical groundwork in this. And what I want to do, I want to look again at the flowing content of the entire book of Scripture, of our Bible together. Because to, to understand what's going to happen to creation, we really need to understand how all of creation fits 
into God's sovereign work and plan together. All right? That makes sense? So, so, okay, so, so as we move through the kind of flow of Scripture, we're going to see again these four major plot movements of Scripture that actually help us answer our main question today. So I want to look at these four major plot movements in the story of Scripture, and that will lead us to answer the main question about the future of creation. And I want you to know in this, this is going to feel initially like a kind of a circuitous route that we're taking as we'll prompt it along in this, but we'll get there in the end, all right? Okay. So again, we've looked at these four movements before, but I think it's, for one, very helpful to be reminded of them, but also today specifically as we consider creation, all right? So, so let's start with another question. That very simple question we ask, okay, so how did this all begin? How did this all begin? Well, to answer that, in one way, we say, what does Scripture say about that? Scripture makes a very clear claim. This is the first words of Scripture, Genesis 1.1. And remember, this is the word of God. And it says here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first movement of scripture, remember, is this. It's creation. I want you to remember these, so just say the word with me, would you? Creation. Okay. The first movement is creation in scripture. In, in which we find this created world brought into existence by the eternal God. And he created everything to be perfect, in harmony. W one word that is used of it, to be in shalom together. Now, now scripture's teaching about creation, it really expands our understanding about two fundamental realities. It helps us understand about God and about us. So what does this creation story tell us about God? Well, it tells us, as we see it unfold it, that there's one God, and, and then additionally, though he is infinite in power, goodness, and holiness, he's also personal and loving. It also tells us this world is not an accident, but it's the creation of this one God. And so through God, everything was brought into existence. Whatever means he chose to bring this into existence, whatever pattern, he brought it into existence. Okay, so we ask the question, so what do we learn about why God created the universe? Why did God create the world in us? Okay, well, the answer to that question is just, again, it's just one of the elements that makes the Christian understanding of God so profound and unique. And we've discussed before many times that although there is just one God, within God's being, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who again are all equally God, and who have loved, adored, served, and enjoyed one another for all eternity. Okay, so according to scripture, this triune God created us, understand this, not because he lacked love or community. He wasn't lonely, because he had that in himself as a triune God for all eternity. But rather, God created for one, just as an outflow of his creativity. That's who our God is. But also he created in order to share his joy and love, which he knew within himself, and, and populated creation with beings in his image who could therefore worship him, know him, serve him, delight in him. Okay, so, so the biblical account of creation, it unfolds these realities about God. But it also unfolds certain realities about us, about humanity. For example, look a bit later in Genesis 1. It says this in verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him, catch this phrase, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So these opening words of scripture, they declare, catch this again, that we're made in God's image. We were formed in the Imago Dei. That, that means that God endowed us with traits unique among all species that uniquely reflect his triune nature. And, and that's reflected in part in, for one, our capacity to walk in loving relationship, to express creativity, to have moral sensibility and responsibility. So while we humans, while we lost any ability to save ourselves, we have not lost the Imago Dei. It, it's been distorted, but not obliterated. So I want us to catch this. Understand, the Imago Dei is more fundamental to us than our sin nature. Right? Amen. Right. It is deeper, it is more original, more truly human because it reflects God's original design for us in his image. And so we say, okay, well, what else does the creation movement in Scripture tell us about we humans? Well, as we read in Genesis 1, God calls humans, he calls us to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion over creation. Some call this the creation mandate. So followers of Jesus across history, literally, have understood this to mean that all people have a responsibility to be stewards of the creation. So from creation onward, we humans are, we are image bearers of God, right? But also, we are stewards of nature and culture. We have dominion over all creation. Look around. That's us. That's part of God's calling on us. All right, so note again. These, friends, are our most basic attributes. They're more original than original sin. And all humans, saved or not, share these. And, and friends, that's why we should celebrate when anyone, whether a believer or unbeliever, cares for creation, right? That makes sense? Because that's a reflection of God's design for us. Okay, that has additional implications. One implication being this. For one, it, it means we're not to be dualists. Remember dualism? Dualism says that kind of material things like creation, those things are bad, but spiritual things are good. That's not biblical, right? Someone say right. right. It, it's not, just so you know. Understand creation, this material realm is essentially good. God loves and values his creation. Okay, and second, it also means that Christian concern for the environment, ecology, it is rooted not only in our dependence upon the earth, but even more essentially, it is rooted in the God-glory-giving value of the earth to God himself, to its creator. And, and understand, we're to lead in caring for creation, right? We're to lead in that. And in case any of you are thinking, okay, wait a second, 
Is this just some kind of new reading of scripture in response to all the environmental and ecological concerns of people in our day, in our culture? I want you to know, this goes far beyond just our culture today. In fact, go back to the fourth century. Go back to the early church fathers. One of the great fathers was Athanasius of Alexandria. He was the one who actually led the Council of Nicaea. Listen to what he wrote. The goodness of the material world paves the way for the incarnation in which the Son assumes flesh in order to redeem the world. So understand, that's the value that even the early church fathers placed upon creation and our responsibility to care for that creation. So this is the first movement of Scripture that we see. It is creation, first movement, that God created us to adore, serve Him, and to love others. And if we had lived that way, we would have walked in joy and happiness and, and enjoyed a perfect world. So we're prompted by a second question then. Okay, so what went wrong? What went wrong? And that leads to the second movement that Scripture lays out. And we'll just call it fall. Say the word, will you? Fall. Creation, then fall. Because the Genesis story tells of God giving one restriction to humanity, right? In the Genesis story, it says, God said to humanity, just don't eat the fruit from that tree. But they ate it. And this is the point of that story. Here it is. Humanity rebelled against God. That's us. Humanity rebelled against the loving God, which brought sin in the world and in every human heart. And that's why the Apostle Paul would write this when he tried to explain this to the church in Rome. This is in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I mean, because of the fall, because we turned away from God, because of sin... Understand, everything in creation was marred. Everything. So we, God's image bearers, we rebelled against him. We alienated ourselves from him, but from each other, and also from the entire created order. So as a result of that, God's good and beautiful creation, it was marred by sin's ugliness and disease. And so scripture claims, in, in light of this, that because our relationship with God was broken... All other relationships with other human beings, with our very selves, with the created world, are also ruptured. And the result of that, as Scripture lays out, is this kind of spiritual, even psychological, social, physical decay and breakdown in the created realm. And, and so what we do is, we therefore try to maintain control of our lives by living primarily for something else. We, we do it and we seek kind of hope or something in money. Possessions, career perhaps, family or fame, romance, sex, maybe it's power, maybe it's comfort, maybe it's social or political causes or something else. But the result is always a loss of control. The result when we find, try to find ultimate purpose in those things is what scripture calls slavery, idolatry. I don't know if you know the name of David Foster Wallace. He is a novelist who, who not long before his suicide, he spoke these words to the graduating class at Kenyon College in Ohio. And Wallace was far from being anyone who ever claimed to be some kind of follower of God. But even so, listen to what he said. Everybody worships. The only choice we get 
is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are the top real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Or worship your body and beauty, sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Or worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll never need, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Or worship intellect, being seen as smart. And you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. These are our default settings. Hmm. So first consequence of the fall of sin is spiritual bondage. But there's a second consequence of the fall. We'll just call it condemnation. Again, Paul wrote this a little farther on in his Roman letter. Romans 6.23, he says simply, for the wages, the consequence of our sin, of our rebellion against God, is death. Not just meaning physical death, but ultimately separation from God. So, so meaning we are not just suffering because of sin, we are guilty because of sin. First two moments in Scripture is creation, then the fall. So it leads to a third key question. So can anything be done, right? And that leads us to the third wonderful movement of Scripture. We'll call it redemption. Say the word, will you? Redemption. Meaning, this word says that there will be a day when good triumphs over evil. When light overcomes darkness. And understand, this redemption movement in Scripture really forms the bulk of this book. It begins even far back as Noah, on to Abraham, it is woven in there. It continues through to the people of Israel, a people who were chosen by God to bring redemption, salvation, to all nations. It continues on to King David, and finally to the one who is called the son of David, to the Messiah, to Yeshua, to Jesus. So understand, most of the story of Scripture is the unfolding of redemption, following creation and the fall. And, and that's why Jesus said this, as it's expressed in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke chapter 19. Luke 19 and verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came, that's Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. God and Jesus came to the rescue. <laughs> I love the story that Tim Keller tells about Dorothy Sears. If you know about Sears, she was an acclaimed British author, fiction writer. And, and Sears was actually one of the first women to attend Oxford University. And if you read any of her novels, the main character in her novels is Lord Peter Whimsey. He's kind of this aristocratic sleuth, a single man. And at one po point of her novels, though, a new character arrives and appears, Harriet Vane. And Harriet is described in the novels as one of the first women who graduated from Oxford. And she's described as a writer of mystery novels. And then eventually in these books, Harriet and Peter, they fall in love and they marry. So after Sarah's death, literary, literary scholars continue to ask, so who is a real life Harriet? 
And many scholars understandably believe that Sarah's essentially looked in the world she had created, felt compassion on her lonely hero, and she wrote herself into the story to save him. Isn't that touching? <laughs> but understand, that is nowhere near as moving or stunning as the reality of the incarnation of Jesus. This is how John expresses it. In the Gospel of John, right at the start, in John chapter 1, John 1 verse 14, and the word, that Jesus, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He moved in next door. And we've seen his glory. So God, as it were, looked into the world he had made, and he saw our lostness. He had compassion on us, his creations. Because of the fall, because of our sin, because of the guilt and condemnation of our sin, our brokenness, we deserve judgment. I mean, understand a holy, just God can't simply kind of shrug off our rebellion. Just kind of saying, I feel sorry about that is not enough. So God wrote himself into human history as its main character. And so Jesus Christ came, he lived this perfect life that no human being had ever done. And yet when the time had fully come, Jesus received in our place on the cross the rejection, the condemnation we deserve. And so the apostle Peter then, in trying to summarize what took place, wrote this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we, he might do what? Say it with me. Bring us to God. So that, so that when we believe in him, when we submit to Jesus as Lord, it means we can receive the blessing and acceptance that he deserves as the son of God. That's the declaration of the story. That there's no other hope for being rescued and redeemed for a God outside of Jesus and his work. These wonderful first three movements of scripture, it begins with creation and speaks of the fall, then moves to redemption, most of the story. But the story doesn't end with redemption though, right? Now, now we come back to the question with which we began. Here's the fourth question. So what will a future hold? Here's our question. The fourth and final movement of scripture, we'll just call it restoration. Can you say it with me? Restoration. This is how Paul put it. Again, in his letter to the church in Rome. This is in Romans chapter 16, Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, what does that imply? Well, here's a picture that was given to an apostle called John, a follower of Jesus, in a great revelation, a vision he had. It's right near the end of Scripture itself. The next to last chapter, this is in Revelation chapter 21. Here's the vision John was given of the life to come. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, again, will dwell with them. And they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For those former things... They passed away. Can I summarize that? God will restore all of creation to the way it was designed to be. Praise God. 
Okay, think of what are the implications? What does that mean to say that God will restore all of creation to the way it was designed to be? It means for one, for us, it means certainly that those who have gained forgiveness, who in new life in Jesus, that through faith in Jesus, we will live eternally with God as redeemed creations. But it doesn't just mean that. But because also, and I especially want us to catch this today, God does not limit his redemption just to his image bearers. It's not just to us. Because in the, dem, in the end, God will also redeem this universe he's made. Forming what scripture calls, it's like a new heaven, a new earth. Unblemished by sin and its consequences. Friends, understand that this is one of the great beauties of the story of scripture. It's kind of the doctrine of creation we began with brought full circle. In fact, Bishop Timothy Ware, listen to how he expresses it. Not only man's body, but the whole of material creation will eventually be transfigured. Redeemed humanity is not to be snatched away from the rest of creation, but creation itself is to be saved and glorified along with him. Because the first time that Jesus came from heaven to earth, he came in one way, in, in weakness, to suffer for our sins. But when he comes again, he's coming to judge the world for one, and he is coming to put a final end to all evil, suffering, decay, and death in all of creation. Hallelujah. <laughs> and, and so that's why, understand, that's why the apostle Peter would write again in his second epistle. Listen to Peter's words here. In, in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter wrote, but according, whoa, lost it. It's good. Wait for it. Here it comes. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So understand it. Think about this. In a form similar to the renewed, reformed resurrection bodies that those who have turned to Christ will receive, creation itself will be reformed, renewed. It's like the old will be dissolved. It'll like it's all burned away and there's a new kind of resurrected creation. Is, can that be true? Here's how Paul put it. Again, writing to the Roman church, rich with this imagery. This is what he wrote in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And creation then will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen. This means that Christ's salvation does not merely save our souls so we can therefore kind of escape the pain of the curse of this physical world. No, that the final goal is redemption of our souls and our bodies, right? As well as the renewal and restoration of the material world that God brought into creation. All right, with all that, let me ask you this. Is your picture of eternity, us kind of flying away to some distant heaven? We sing a hymn like that, don't we? I'll fly away. We do. We don't sing it here, actually, for that reason. Listen to what author Vinith Ramakandra of Sri Lanka notes about how unique this Christian view of creation is among all the religions of the world. This is what he writes. 
So our salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any religious systems or philosophies of humankind. This biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say there is salvation in other faiths, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? Because no faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for creation the way the cross and the resurrection of Jesus do. Because the things that are now wrong with the material world, our God wants to put right. And so his creation will be renewed. And even the trees will be singing for joy. And friends, if the trees will be able to dance and sing under Christ's cosmos renewing power, what will we be able to do? (laughs) Because this story declares to us that it's going to be like this. It's like heaven will descend to earth. Oh, Father, uh, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. There will be a day when that's fulfilled. It will be, Scripture says, it's like a new Jerusalem will descend from the heavens, and in that place, Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. Amen? So while we wait, we wait with hopeful anticipation for him to return, to complete this final work. While we wait, he calls us, he calls you, friend, to participate with him in bringing healing and restoration here to be a foretaste of the future reality we're going to enjoy. So so as we humans, as we value then this creation, this earth, not only because of its origin, but also because of its eternal destiny. Four movements of scripture tell us that. Let's say them together as well. Will you read them with me? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, so why is this so important? Why stress this, Clyde? For this reason. I think it's safe to say that in the last 200 years, often, we've kind of truncated the original gospel. In fact, listen to what Tim Keller writes about this, about the problem and solution. Some Christians think of the story of salvation like this. Fall, redemption, heaven. In that narrative, only saved people have anything of value because people in the world are simply blind and bad. And the purpose of redemption is to escape this world. But if the story of salvation is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, then things look very different. It means non-Christians created in the image of God have much wisdom and greatness within them even though the image is defaced and fallen. Moreover, the purpose of redemption is not to escape from this world, but to renew it. The gospel then is not just about individual happiness and fulfillment. It is not just a wonderful plan for my life. Listen to this. The gospel is a wonderful plan for all of creation. It is about the coming of God's kingdom to restore all things, everything. Amen? So understand today as we're gathered here, That's what you, as children of God, are called into. That's the incredible calling God puts upon this. And let me add to you today, the wonderful story of redemption is, if you want to be part of this incredible gift and story for eternity, Jesus says, come to me. Even in silent prayer, you can call out to him, turn to him in faith. And scripture says, it's like the old will be washed away from you, and everything will be made new. You will be a new creation in Christ. That's the invitation. This is what we're part of. Praise God. 
So let me do this. Let me lead us in a prayer, and then let's worship our Creator together, all right? In song, let me pray. So, Father, we come to you with thanksgiving and praise, wondering again, what are we that you are even mindful of us? And we pray, Father, we would be faithful in following your Son, in walking with him, in the joy of drawing others to him, certainly, in extending that redemption, that restoration to others. But also we pray, by your grace and through your Spirit, we would be part of expressing just initial foretaste of the coming reality of the new heavens and new earth that you have planned for us. This we pray, Father, and sing these words to you now because you are our King, you are God, you are our Creator, and we worship you. Amen.